The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Our scripture reading is in 2 Kings 17 this evening. If you would turn there in your copy of God's Word, 2 Kings chapter 17. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea the son of Elah became king in Israel, king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Now the king of Assyria went throughout the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made. Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. Pause. This is all idolatry, okay? All of it. There they burned incense on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them and they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols, there it is, of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all His prophets, every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep My commandments and My statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by My servants the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected His statutes and His covenant that He had made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he had testified against them, they followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandment of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal or Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire that's child sacrifice, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from His sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel, which they made. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of plunderers until He had cast them from His sight. For He tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of His sight. 
as he had said by all his servants the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria as it is to this day. Now that sounds very much repetitive, doesn't it? But you know what? The Lord is going to keep telling them and review with them and remind them and rehearse to them and repeat to them until when? They get it. That's the problem. You keep talking and talking and instructing and instructing and calling for righteousness and you don't get it, so you have to keep doing it if you're very patient. But what God wants is change. He wants a response. He wants repentance. Verse 24, Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvayim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Now that seems to me like it comes from a superstitious perspective even though it is correct that the true God was sending these lions among them. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth, Benot, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hemeth made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. So they feared the Lord and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. Obviously that fear of the Lord was not a thoroughgoing fear. It was only very partial. Verse 34, To this day they continue practicing the former rituals They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord, who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, Him you shall fear, Him you shall worship, and to Him you shall offer sacrifice." And the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God, you shall fear. And he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. So at the time of the writing and compilation of the records of the kings of Israel and Judah, that's what they had done. Sad testimony, my friends. What else can we say?
continued disobedience of the people of God and of the nations that replaced them. So, well, tonight we, uh, I mentioned I would go back to the book of Joel, so let's do that. We have spent uh, a little bit of time here, two or three sessions in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So we thus begin again in Joel chapter 2. Daniel, you'll find fairly easily after Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Joel had detailed in chapter 1 a locust plague. He had talked about a drought. And in between them, he had called the nation of Israel to lament and mourn and call a fast and then basically to call them to repentance. Then there was a third plague. We looked at that last time. The third plague was the destruction by a foreign army. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We demonstrated last time that this is indeed an army, although it has some similarities to uh, locusts. We saw that uh, they ran in formation. Uh, They did all kinds of things consistent with the human army. They were called a people. Chapter 2 of Joel, verse 2. A people right in the middle of that verse, great and strong. Uh, And although there are those similarities to locusts, this is indeed, as we understand, a human army. Uh, The locust section was ended in chapter 1 around verse 12. And uh, it doesn't make sense to me to see this as a resumption of that section. There's been a lot of uh, verses in between with the call to to repentance and also the the drought passage at the end of chapter 1 to go back to the locusts. You also have this very difficult uh, situation. If it were a locust army, it doesn't seem like they'd be so well organized. Characteristics of the the army are are seen just by looking over the the passage. Uh, One thing is they run, they they go in formation uh, and and do their conquering. So this actually, as I've understood it, uh, has to do with the Assyrian captivity. Which, of which we just read about in Second Kings 17. So, uh, the army brings great fear. We talked about the question of timing. Uh, when is this? Uh, is it right soon around the time of Joel or shortly thereafter? Or is it far in the future as, another, as other interpreters take? Um, so, we were kind of dealing with that question the last time that we left the subject. And some, uh, some said, in fact, well, it seems like it's near fulfillment to Joel. It seems like it's far. So let's say it's both altogether. And uh, I, I don't take that, that, that school of thought or that school of interpretation. Uh, we although it's difficult sometimes, it is, I think, necessary for us to work hard at figuring out where the fulfillment is because the words are not meant to be generic with multiple fulfillments. There's not one set of words that connotes several different meanings. Words have a meaning in a context and that's what we call the words speaking univocally, univocally with one voice. You know how it is when somebody speaks equivocally. What does that mean? 
They're equivocating. Both sides of their mouth are wishy-washy or vague or something like that. That's not Scripture. Scripture does not do that. Uh, Univocal or equal vocal or two vocal or multivocal. No, it's just one. Okay. So I don't take the near and far fulfillment together. Um, that obviously, you know, makes it difficulty because then you've got to decide between the two and, and there are arguments on both sides. Earlier I mentioned um, that I, this is last time, that I don't have a problem with this phrase, the day of the Lord. Look at uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. The day of the Lord is coming at the end of the verse, for it is at hand. I don't have a problem with using that phrase to refer to more than one event in history, although some interpreters say every single time the day of the Lord is mentioned, it is far future, referring to the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. Remember, in your mind now, we went over that last time on Sunday night. So, some would say it's exclusively future. Others would say, well, like I'm saying, suggesting here, any time period in which the Lord is active in judgment and or blessing could be called by the prophets a day of the Lord. I think that's fine. It's not going to offer us a huge problem. What would offer us a huge problem is if we took all of the occurrences of day of the Lord and shoved them into the past. That's not the case. Most passages of the Old Testament that use the phrase day of the Lord refer to what we call the eschaton, the eschatological, the future uh, program of God. Uh, Let me just refer to one or two of those later in these this little book of prophets here in Zechariah chapter 14. The Bible says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and so on. But then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. Now, has that occurred? Clearly not. When is this event that that Zechariah is prophesying? When is it going to occur? Around what major other event? And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Whose feet? Christ. And that's when He comes back, right? So when does He come back? Relative to rapture, tribulation, millennial kingdom. Reviewing back the timeline from last week. After the tribulation. You're right. Okay, so at the end of the tribulation. So this has to refer to events that are yet future. At the at, Toward the end of the tribulation, the nations gather. Remember, there's this thing we called Armageddon. This whole campaign, this whole long war that ends with a terrible calamity at Jerusalem, among other places, but certainly there. And God comes, the Lord Jesus comes rather, and rescues the nation of Israel through at Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives, there's a great earthquake, a great valley is opened, and all the things here are specified. That's the day of the Lord that's coming. Okay, so one such passage. Uh, very easy to see that it's in the future and has not happened yet. 
there's no way that you can suggest that that has happened yet. So, just like I'm saying an exclusively near interpretation is impossible in that case, there are other cases like our one in Joel 2 where it seems like the day of the Lord is so at hand that we can't associate it with those far future events. So, let me try to summarize what we've said on this subject. I take it that Joel is talking about a soon coming judgment. He uses the heading, the day of the Lord, to describe that judgment. This is not the day in the far future, or the eschatological day as we call it, but it is like it. He then moves, after chapter 2, verse 17, into verse 18, he moves to then a far future portion of fulfillment of the prophecy. So he tells about something that's going to happen soon. Then in 2.18, he switches to tell about something that's going to happen afar off. He speaks of the Lord's zeal to restore the people of Israel. That's obviously not happened in any thorough or permanent way in history. I mean, you see the nation there today since 1948 and the ups and downs that they've had and some periods of relative peace and much you know, difficulty. But that nation is not in the land in what we call in belief. They are in unbelief. So that is not the fulfillment of biblical prophecy when they come and they mourn for their, the Messiah and they recognize their sin and they are rightly related to God. That's, that's not what's happening today. So we know that the present day gathering of Israel is not that prophesied in the Bible for the future. That will happen. So what's actually going to happen is Israel is going to be scattered during the tribulation. Then, well, maybe gathered initially and then scattered under persecution. Then gathered again. And uh, then they will be judged and those who are believers will enter into the kingdom as we talked about some a little bit last time as well. So, um, it seems to me that Joel in 2.18 and following does not mention any further judgments on Israel after 2.18. So this makes it appear that the period of blessing is, is the final unending blessing of the people of God in the kingdom and then in eternal future. Okay, so now what do we do with this? I'm going to talk about this in terms of practical relevance here a little bit and then a little bit later on as the Lord gives us the time this evening to enjoy a little further reading. The practical relevance of this is that as then, 2,500 years ago, 2,800 years ago, just like then, today the world faces what basically amounts to imminent judgment by God. I think we kind of think that God's judgment is maybe only future, But we have to recognize that when God hands people over to their own sinful and reprobate minds, that is an act of judgment. And so that when God turns us over and hands us over and hands us over, like Romans 1 says three times, to, uh, you know, immorality and darkened mind or reprobate mind and all those things, those are judgments because they send us, us, I say, our our world, farther down the tubes. Okay? And God is willing to 
extricate individuals from the, you know, the, the tube that's going down and save souls. That's still true. But the, the society as a whole is facing imminent judgment by the Holy God. And He is a consuming fire. And 7.7 or however many billion people there are on the planet now cannot say, God, we don't want that judgment. We, we, we think you should just forget about that idea. That's not going to happen. Now, God has told us of no other impending day of the Lord but the one that comes after the rapture. In other words, any day of the Lord that's now still like not checked off the to-do list, there's only one of those on the to-do list. And that day of the Lord is the big one. And it should it's going to come after the rapture, start right away after the rapture. Of the date, nobody knows. Of course, because the Lord's rapture and then the, all the rest of that comes like a thief in the night. But what it should do, should do, all else being right and good, it should cause the world, the nations, the people, the kings and governors, a sense of deep and abiding fear and a sense of urgency to do something to be right with God. They might not know exactly what it is. To, I was thinking of this in my study this afternoon. I was thinking, you know, just do something. Anything to be right with God. And, and, and you move in that direction. God, God will you know, send messengers and, uh, and do what His pleasure is to help. And if you don't know, then find somebody who does. But be urgent about that matter. Instead of closing the churches down, people should be flocking there to ask the believers and the pastors, what do we do? And John the Baptist would answer, oh, well, if he was, if he was in one of his moods, he would say, oh, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Or he might say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what we, we, I just would, I would love to see it. I would love to see some authority figures crying out, what do we do to get right with God? Make, you know, we need to, to, to make a, a, a nationwide announcement. We need to figure out what to do. We need to have those who are expert in God's Word to teach us what to do in this situation because we are living in evil and wicked days. So, the same kind of thing was the situation for Joel's audience. Now, they're not facing the impending future to us day of the Lord, but they're facing a day of the Lord that's, that's near. It's at hand. Chapter 2, verse 1 says. And so, what are they supposed to do? Well, look at verse 12. It tells them. Just exactly what I've been saying in terms of practical application for our own situation. It tells them, verse 12, Now therefore, says the Lord, therefore, you, got, you know what therefore is therefore. It's to tell you that there, this is now the consequence or what, what should be the consequence of what we've just taught. Therefore, says the Lord, in view of all of that, in view of impending judgment, turn to Me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart 
and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Notice return has the word turn in it very conveniently. For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Who knows if He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. I'm going to read down through 17. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Here, here they are being told to do something. Now, they're not told to do anything. They're told to do these specific acts. But do something. Don't just sit there wondering why your nation is in such shambles. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Stop everything. If you're in the middle of a wedding, forget it. Stop. We need to pay attention. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So he calls them to repent. The Lord does through Joel the prophet. God Himself calling them to repent. How is this any different than Jesus coming in Matthew 4, verse number 17 and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? He's the Lord. This is the Lord speaking. You see, salvation is not so different in the Old Testament than it is in the New at all. It's basically the exact same thing, except you didn't tell people in the Old Testament, Jesus died for your sins and rose again. It wouldn't make any sense for them. But they would, they could, after Isaiah 53 was written, see that the servant would come and suffer for their sins, give himself as a, a ransom, iniquity for their iniquities, uh, and all of that that we see in Isaiah 53. But anyway, still basically the same idea. Turn. Repent. The results are seen, the results of repentance, I should say, are seen outwardly in actions such as fasting, weeping, and mourning. Uh, James chapter 4 uses similar language. I'll just visit that for one second and read it to you. In James chapter 4, the Bible says in verse 9, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Our society is dying in a humorous fashion. That's an odd way of saying it, but everybody's laughing their way to the grave. Entertainment, comedy, it's all good fun. They're just happy about how everybody's sinning. Clapping, yeah, making merry. All of that stuff. And God is saying, don't be happy. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom because your end is not good. You need to repent. Those who are friends of the world instead of friends of God. That's how it is. A true work of God's grace in repentance always shows external fruit. You cannot say that somebody who is been born again, shows no fruit. That is a, I don't know what you call it, it's a non-thing. It's an oxymoron to say there's a person who shows no fruit. Repentance demonstrates itself. 
John the Baptist said as much when he said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now, God says here, turn. This is a command. Turning is also known as repentance. Now, I'm going to kind of take a little side trail for a moment here because this idea has been so spoken against in these days. Repentance is not a work. Let me say that again. Repentance is not a work. It is a change of mind, however. It is a change of disposition, just like faith is. Isn't faith a change of mind, a change of disposition, a change of belief? Repentance is concomitant with faith. By that, what I mean is I might not be using that word exactly dictionarily correct, okay, if I can be so bold as to say so, but it goes right with. It goes right with faith. It is together with faith. It is not an addition to faith. It is an inherent aspect of faith itself. When we say repent and believe, that is the same thing as saying that salvation comes by faith alone. What kind of faith? Repentant faith. The nature of faith is that it includes a type of commitment. Now, some people say, very strongly so, they criticize what I would have just said and say, Pastor Postiff is a heretic. He's not a true believer. He believes in adding works to salvation. You know that's not true. You know me very well. Some criticize what I've just said by saying that this is faith plus commitment of life. But my friends, that is a bad misunderstanding of the concept of faith. With no element of commitment at all, no element of the will, without a volitional element, faith is merely an intellectual operation. That is, faith minus The will. Faith minus repentance. Faith minus what I'm calling a kind of commitment, which is this repentance idea. Without that, faith is merely head knowledge that saves no one. Including, James 2.19 says, the demons. The demons have faith of a sort, but that's not saving faith. The view that I'm explaining is not faith plus anything. It is true faith. It is faith including repentant commitment. It is faith that is characterized by this sort of what we call commitment. Okay, That's part of what faith is. And, and, and I know that people are going to say faith plus, it's got this commitment aspect or, or repentance and it's an attack on salvation by faith alone. It most certainly is not. It's, it's an expression and exposition of what true faith is. People who believe only in the head and not in the heart are not truly saved people. Okay, We know this inherently. We know that we've had a transaction with God in which when He came to Him, We did not just believe that, oh, Jesus existed and died and buried and rose again. That makes me happy. No, we knew that we were sinners and that God demanded us the punishment of death unless we turned to Christ in faith. 
And without that, we would die in our sins. And besides all of that, we realize that our sins are heinous crimes against God and we don't want anything to do with them. We talked about hating sin and hating that we like sin yesterday. And it's true. True believers hate sin in themselves. That is a healthy kind of hatred directed this way. You know, not everybody wants to have self-esteem directed this way and self-love directed this way, but some things that we do are not worthy of that. They're worthy of our, of our abhorrence. Look at my nature. Look at how dark it is at times and how unsanctified it is. I repent. I don't want this sin in my life. Now, note, for example, the Lord's own expression of faith on the cross. Father, into your hands I what? Commend or commit my spirit. That's what faith is, Luke 23 says. 1 Peter 4.19 says, We commit our souls to Him in doing good. That is an expression of faith, isn't it? Just because it doesn't use the word F-A-I-T-H doesn't mean it doesn't have the idea of F-A-I-T-H. You know what I'm saying? The Bible and theology can express an idea with multiple words because of the marvel of human language and how we can explain trust and commitment and repentance and faith and all these ideas that are connected together. We talk about an idea using different words. And one of them is, you know, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm expressing a, a kind of trust in God. We commit our souls to Him in doing good. This sort of commitment, now listen, hopefully this will help some who might criticize. This sort of commitment is made in principle when we become believers, entrusting the keeping of our souls and our entire lives to God. You hear the word entrust, entrust, trust, faith, belief? In other words, when we express genuine faith, even for the first time, there's a level of repentance and turning to God as God in it. Not just turning to God as a dispenser of blessing, but turning to God as King, as Lord, as Master. Obviously, commitment in practice is not a cause of obtaining salvation. For those who are not yet perfectly sanctified will not and cannot demonstrate a perfect commitment in practice. But they have decided to become followers of Christ as opposed to whatever idols and sin and self-autonomy that they were following before. Looking to Jesus is one of these phrases that people often like to use. Looking to Jesus entails a looking away from self and sin and the like. If you're going to look to Jesus, if you're going to say that all it takes is to look, you know, I'll go this way to the cross here. If you're going to say all it takes is to look to Jesus, yeah, look and live. But when you look there, where are you not looking? Here, or at your idol, or at your favorite pet sin. You're saying, I'm turning away from those things and I'm turning there. This whole concept is, is not necessarily made explicit in our personal testimony of salvation because, you know, when we first are saved, like when I was, when I was 11, I would not have been able to stand up and give this little homily on what true faith is about. I didn't have the theological knowledge or precision to be able to do that. But nonetheless, that real faith was in my soul. Whether I could express it or not, I knew that I was a sinner 
and that I had to get away from that stuff because it wasn't good. It was displeasing to God. So whether I could say the right words or not doesn't change the fact that I had true faith. The reason I'm going over this with you now is to help sharpen your theological precision. And when you run into things that you read on the internet or hear preaching or whatever, then you have enough to say, okay, now what kind of faith is this person talking about? Are they talking about genuine biblical faith or are they talking about a, a, a counterfeit article? Now, part of this, we come, you know, kind of veer back into the text with verse 13, is that we are to put away mere symbolism and genuinely repent. Notice what he says rend your heart, not your garments. What good does it do to tear your clothes? You just wasted a good set of clothing, you know. Uh, you should rend your heart. You should tear at your soul. You should be, you know, sackcloth and ashes, if not outer, outwardly, at least inwardly. <clears throat> now, this doesn't mean that a person in the Old Testament who rent their clothes was sinning, necessarily. But they were sinning if they just tore their garments in a symbolic gesture devoid of any genuine feelings of repentance in their heart. Again, Joel commands them, return to the Lord your God and have these exterior manifestations of the true repentance that happens in your heart. The Bible talks about the circumcised heart, doesn't it? The circumcised heart is the regenerate heart. It's the heart that has been changed, the heart that's been rent in two, the heart which has been on the Calvary Road, the heart which, as Roy Hessian said in that Reformed book by that title, I think it was Calvary Road, that he's, you've faced up to your sin and you've seen what you are and you go to Calvary to get yourself fixed. Yeah. Joel tells the people to return. Now, they say, what good is it to return? Well, Joel's going to tell them in verse 13. He's going to give them five reasons. Five reasons why should you return. Why you should return. Number one, he's gracious. Number two, he's merciful. Number three, he's slow to anger. Number four, he's of great kindness. And number five, he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent. And when he does that, he might do something even better than that, better than you deserve. God will turn and hold off on the devastating coming judgment, perhaps, if you genuinely repent now. God takes no pleasure, my friends, in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18.23 Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Says the Lord God. And that he, not that he should turn from his ways. Verse 32 For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Turn and live. Same thing as later on in the prophet Ezekiel chapter 33. Verse 11 through 16, another of these watchman passages. 
Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Remember that missionary hymn that we sing? Why would ye die? The voice of God is calling. Why would ye die to the nations instead of believing in the One who has rescued you from that death? Perhaps He will turn off or turn away. He will turn away when we turn from our sin, from His, from His awful judgment. The Lord is merciful, withholding that which we deserve. He's also gracious. Notice, He will not only withhold deserved punishment, but He will give that which is undeserved. In verse 14, look what, he, look what Joel says. Who knows if He will turn and relent and, and watch this, and leave a blessing behind Him. Does God have to do that? No. Is God pleased to do that at times? Yes, for sure. He might leave behind Him a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Wow. In other words, when He gives the blessing of agricultural and economic factors, the two being tied together, these two blessings can be used in turn to praise God for His graciousness. God's gracious to you, He gives you. What do you do with that? You give back some to Him. Isn't that, isn't that true? You give some back to Him. When He's offered, given you a wonderful thing, you can offer it to God or to help others, whatever the case is, that is God's leading you to do. So He will turn and be gracious to you. Verses 15 to 17 then are a call for corporate application of the above principles. Those hearing the prophecy must observe the call to repent, but also the nation as a whole needs to be called out to do that. You see, blow the trumpet, consecrate a fast, call, us, call an assembly. So it's not just that, that God is calling out to individuals sprinkled throughout the community. He's calling the whole nation to repent. The priests are especially a part of this. They're supposed to weep and call out in prayer, an intercessory prayer to God. They're to recognize that what they have done stains the reputation of God among the Gentiles. Why should it be, my friends, that the church brings reproach upon the name of God by the poor conduct of it. Same in the Old Testament, the poor conduct of the nation of Israel, labeled as God's people, caused them, caused God's reputation to be stained in the world. You know, people looked at Israel after the captivity in the north and the south, and they said, What happened here? Where is their God? The gods of the Babylonians evidently are more powerful than he is. Yeah, you'd expect the world to say that because that's how they look at things. But Israel should never got in that situation. They should have been the nation of priests, the kingdom of priests that God called them to be. And they shall be yet again in the future. Now, it is high time for our world's leaders and citizens to repent of their sin. Yes, the church does have somewhat of a prophetic ministry that way. It's time for the world's peoples to turn from iniquity and to rend their hearts. Not with empty ritual, but true repentance. 
Fasting in sackcloth would be okay. Cessation of wicked activities would be really the, the real answer though. The only appropriate course of action for people facing the coming divine doom. The time is here to turn from sin and believe in the coming King Jesus, the Christ. The people of earth need to hear that they must do homage to the Son lest He become angry with them and they perish in the way. Psalm 2. That is the message out of this for the people of the world. This is not just a message for the church. Don't think, why is pastor preaching this? He's telling us we're a bunch of wicked sinners and we need to repent. Well, I hope that's not the case. I mean, now that you already have repented. And if there's any wicked way inside of you, Lord, reveal that to us and help us to remove that and be sanctified. But this message is broader. Remember, how can I say it? Look, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, as we call it, God had a people called Israel, but that people was not an entirely redeemed people. It was a people who was made up of some redeemed and some not redeemed. Some believers and some not believers. But they were by birth, nationally, ethnic Israel, and they were God's people that way. They were connected by the Abrahamic covenant, by circumcision, the mark of that covenant, by keeping the law, by the, by the Sabbath, which is a sign of the Mosaic covenant, and, and all of that. That's all well and good. But when, when God's talking to Israel, don't think of Him as like talking to a church that's all saved people. There are tons of people in the nation of Israel, as we saw in 2 Kings 17 and here, that were no more believers than these chairs on the floor here. They were just as dead as dead could be because they hadn't repented. They were, they were like, yeah, like their fathers, stiff-necked, right? They would not listen to the Holy Spirit. They would not respond to the call to repentance. And so this message is almost more appropriate to preach in the public square than it is in the church. But I don't have a venue in the public square, so I want to preach it to the church anyway, okay? <laughs> and help you to understand what it says, what it means in its context, and what it means for our nation, so that when you're talking to individuals out in the world and they say, What what should we do? Well, just like what John the Baptist said, repent. King is coming. Day of the Lord is coming. Your sin is going to send you straight to eternal condemnation. Sometime we ought to read that sermon by Jonathan Edwards, by the way. So I think, did I say this this morning or somebody else said, uh, you're skating on thin ice? You know, and you know, as a, as a, in a spiritual metaphor, you know what's under that ice? Fire. You don't want to find out what's down there. Yeah, well, that's like Edwards saying, you know, you're suspended between life and eternal condemnation by a mere thread, and as soon as God releases that thread, you're gone. And it's a terrible thought, but people, man, well, they put it out of their minds, right? Because they say, well, God doesn't exist, or that's all a fairy tale, or we're not going to be accountable, we're just going to die and go back to the dust. Where did they get that idea? God gave them that idea. From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. But they're ignoring the larger teaching of the Bible that there's something that happens with the soul of a person after death. So, 
Well, that got us through verse 17. Next time we'll pick up at verse 18 with a refreshing from the Lord that will happen in the eschaton when all this is said and done. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, would to God that someone from the world would hear at least a portion of this message and realize that apart from Christ, there is no salvation. As we said this morning, salvation does not come in redemptive violence as the Antifa and fascist crowds say. It does not come in in doing good works. It does not come from education or politics or health care or scientific innovation. It comes from Christ alone. And Lord, we pray that You would shake some into this reality. Some of our governors, some of our lieutenant governors, legislators, senators, president, vice president, people in the cabinet, people hidden away in the depths of the administrative state in all the states and also in Washington, D.C. Lord, strike some, if not all, with repentance, with that gift of faith and and that level of commitment to You that says, I'm turning away from my sin and turning to Christ. Oh Lord, I don't know how this could ever be, but we know that You have a people yet. There are some whose names are written in that book of life, the Lamb, all the way from the foundation of the world. And yet, although their names are there, they are waiting to hear and respond to the Gospel because in time You have brought us to Yourself. And we thank You for that, for each one of us, that You have graced us with salvation. May we live like that and certainly not like the world. We pray this all in Jesus' name and with a final word of blessing upon Your people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, commend ourselves into Your care. In His name, Amen.